0: The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth and not I only but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever grace mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Before I begin this morning's message, I just want to let you know or call to your attention the fact that our new sermon series for Advent, the Bible reading plan, is available to you today. You should have one tucked inside your program. Um, If you um, didn't get one, you can pick one on the way out if you want a printed copy. Also, we always make them available online through um, the website or through the church app if you prefer prefer um, to utilize the Bible reading plan that way. In just two weeks from today, we'll be starting our Advent sermon series, which is called Christmas Lights. But today, we continue through our sermon series on the letters of John. We spent the last six weeks working our way through the first letter of John, and today we're going to take a look at John's second letter. Now, if the first letter is uh, the, if first John is a letter, um, then Second John is maybe more of a postcard. It's a short 13 verses. It is short, but it is to the point. Let's hear again those first six verses. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us, "'and will be with us forever. "'Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father "'and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son "'will be with us in truth and love. "'It has given me great joy "'to find some of your children walking in the truth "'just as the Father commanded us. "'And now, dear lady, "'I am not writing you a new command, "'but one we have had from the beginning. "'I ask that we love one another. "'And this is love.' That we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. This short letter from John begins the way most ancient letters began. The author identifies himself and then he notes to whom the letter is written. Second John begins rather abruptly, I think, with the author identifying himself simply as the elder. Now, historians believe that John was well into his 80s when he died in Ephesus, and so clearly he would have been considered an elder statesman of the church in his later years when he wrote this letter. And while the elder could have simply meant that an older man was writing, the term had come to refer to a respected leader in the church, and the apostle John was certainly that. He was the last remaining of the original 12 disciples who had seen Jesus and touched Jesus and worked with Jesus and learned from Jesus. And John had been an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. John wrote this letter to the lady chosen by God and her children. This term might be a way of referring to a prominent Christian woman in whose home the church met. I mean, you've got to remember that in this day there were no church buildings, so the church gathered in people's homes and often prominent people had big enough homes to allow people um, to come and gather. And so the children might be a way of referring to the people who gathered in this home for worship. But more likely, this phrase is symbolic, a symbolic term for the church, Because the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. And the elect, or the chosen, are the followers of Jesus who belong to him. Who make up the church. The body of Christ. In the latter years of the first century, the church faced a lot of pressure. From the outside, persecution was a real threat from Roman authorities. From the inside, as we've been learning, false teachers arose that threatened to deceive believers into turning away from the simple message of Jesus. So in this letter, John wants his readers to be concerned with one very important thing, the truth. In the first four verses of this letter, John uses the word truth five times. Times So you can tell right from the start that this letter is going to talk a lot about truth and that it's very important to John. I think that if John were writing this letter today, he would be equally, if not even more concerned for truth. That's because real truth is in trouble today. Truth is an absolute standard of by which reality is measured. But more and more people don't believe in absolute truth anymore. Today we live in a post-modern age, a post-Christian culture. People don't live on the truth. they live on what they believe to be true. But how can you determine truth by how you feel when feelings are always changing? After the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, a majority of Americans denounced the attacks and said they were a textbook example of evil. This suggested that there is a foundational belief in an absolute standard of right and wrong. But subsequent research, by Barna Research in 2002, just one year after the attacks, showed that a minority of Americans believed in the existence of absolute moral truth. In a national survey, Barnard researched, asked people if they believe that there are moral absolutes that are unchanging or that moral truth is relative to circumstances. And by a three-to-one margin, adults said truth is always relative to the person and their situation. And people who self-identified as born-again Christians didn't fare very much better. They only scored a couple of small percentage points higher than the population at large in the belief in moral absolutes. So think about it. When it comes to your physical well-being, you want absolutes, don't you? If you boarded a plane to go somewhere and the pilot said, I think this is the button I'm supposed to push to make this fly, you would ask for a new pilot, wouldn't you? Or if they wheeled you into the operating room and the surgeon said, I think I know where to make the incision today, you'd say, get me a different surgeon, wouldn't you? And if you took your prescription into the pharmacy to have it filled and the pharmacist said, I'm pretty sure this is the prescription that you're supposed to take to make you feel better, you would want a different pharmacist, wouldn't you? When it comes to your physical well-being, you don't want guesswork. You want the security that the person who is taking care of you knows what they are doing. You want the truth. So why should it be any different With spiritual truth. Truth brings light, it brings clarity. God is truth, and God cannot be anything but truthful. And so, truth is anything that God says on any subject. God's holy word, the scriptures, the Bible is our standard, it is reliable. And it allows us to navigate and discern the lies that we hear in our ear every day. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now people often confuse truth with facts. Now facts make up truth, but they are not the same thing as truth. For example, I may have a headache, and I may go to my medicine cabinet and get out the bottle of aspirin, and I may take some aspirin, and my headache may not go away. And after several days, I may decide to make an appointment with my doctor, and she may send me to get a brain scan in which I find that the reason I have a headache is that I have a brain tumor. You see, I had a fact I had a headache. But that didn't tell me the whole truth, that the cause of my headache was a brain tumor. Facts can also be used to manipulate the truth. There was a young boy who went out for his high school track team. This boy had never been very good at at athletics, but his dad had been a great runner back in the day, and he wanted more than anything else to make his dad proud. And so he went to school, and his coach paired him up in a two-man race with the best miler in the high school. The coach just kind of wanted to see how the boy stacked up. And as you might imagine, the boy was badly beaten. And so when he got home from school, his dad asked, Hey, son, how was your day? And he said, Dad, you're going to be so proud of me. Today, I raced against the fastest miler in school— And dad said, great, how did you do? And he said, well, the fastest miler came in second to last, but I came in second place. You see how easy it is to use the truth, to twist the facts and make it sound like something different. As Christians, we are to follow the example of Jesus, who is the truth in person. We are to stay close to God's word, reading it, memorizing it, getting it inside of us, because then when falsehoods and lies come our way, we'll be able to discern the truth from the lie. John describes the truth as living in us and being with us forever in verse 4. In his first letter, John spent most of his time highlighting how the truth, knowing God and his commands, is the source of Christian love. In his second letter, he does the same. Now, the idea that Christians should love one another is woven, as you know, throughout the New Testament. But it is a much older commandment than that. Remember, God himself is love, and so God has given this command to love since he formed a people unto himself. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, which is a book filled with laws that God gave to his people through Moses. In chapter 19, verse 18, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now we can show love to our neighbor in lots of ways. We can treat our neighbor the way we want to be treated. We can guard against prejudice and discrimination. We can listen to our neighbor. We can help our neighbor and give to our neighbor when they're in need. We can serve our neighbor. We can forgive our neighbor when they have wronged us. And we can ask for forgiveness from our neighbor when we have wronged them. John is adamant that people who walk in the truth should be people who love others. But this love that John says is required of followers of Jesus is not merely a sentimental love. It is not at all a sweet or a syrupy kind of love. This kind of love is not a subjective feeling. It is a conscious decision to love others even when they're hard to love, even when we don't feel like loving. John's encouragement to his readers was not simply to love others, but to love others within the limits that truth allows. Remember, there were deceivers going about the churches who were teaching false doctrines. They were called, as we've been learning, Gnostics. And one of the things they taught was that spirit was good, but that matter or the flesh, the material world, was evil. And so as a result, they said that Jesus could not possibly have been both God and man because God could not have put on human flesh. But in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, John said, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. John refuted these false teachers and the lies they were spreading. And as believers, we're not doing anyone any favors by allowing these types of false teachings into the church. John said that anyone who greets this type of false teacher without loving rebuke is in danger of taking part in these wicked works. And John practiced what he preached. The early Christian bishop and historian of Christianity, Eusebius, tells a story about John from the writings of Bishop Irenaeus. He says, We have seen that one of the leaders of the Gnostic heresy was a man called Cerinthus. The apostle John once entered a bath to bathe, but when he learned that Cerinthus was also within, he sprang from his place and rushed out of the door, for he could not bear to remain under the same roof with him. He advised those who were with him to do the same. Let us flee, he said, lest the bath fall, for Cerinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. So love is not to overshadow or overcome truth. Truth comes first, then love. This sounds harsh, but if we allow the truth to be compromised in the church, then we lose our foundation. John uses the primacy of truth as he warns against false teachers that some well-intentioned Christians were entertaining. Like the example above, John warns his readers in verse 10 not to even let into our house someone who denies that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. Now we know that there is objective, unchanging truth out there. It is God's truth and God's truth alone. 2 John reminds us not only of the dangers of falling away from the truth, but also the importance of making obedience to the truth a priority in our lives. Our love is dependent upon our obedience. When we do not obey, we do not love. Second John 6 says, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Love means living according to God's commands. A Christian who really seeks God's best for his brothers and sisters can only do so by obeying what God has commanded him to do. John defines love as being obedient and walking in God's commandments. The greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus says, all the other law and the words of the prophets hang on these two commandments. In his final discourse with his disciples while at the Last Supper, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. John 14 Verses 23 and 24. When John was a very old man and he was living in Ephesus, he used to have to be carried into the worshiping congregation every Lord's Day in the arms of his disciples. And each week he was asked if he had any words for them. And he was unable to say anything except, little children love one another. At last, wearied that he always spoke the same words, they asked, Master, why do you always say this? Because, he replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. We are often under the impression that our obedience to God only affects us. But that simply isn't true. Our actions whether they are obedient or disobedient, have ripple effects far beyond our our own limited circle of influence. Perhaps no one knows obedience better than the men and women who have served in the American armed forces. One learns very quickly there to take orders and to obey them. Two years ago, my wife, Marge, and I were in Normandy, France, just the week before the 75th anniversary of the D-Day commemoration. And because of the worldwide attention that was focused on that place in that moment and the visits that from so many world leaders at that time, we weren't able to go and see the beaches and the cemetery in person on that trip, I hope we get to another time. But recently... I read an account from U.S. Army chaplain, Colonel Timothy S. Mallard, who offered the invocation at the 75th D-Day Anniversary Memorial Service in Colville-sur-Mer, France, on June the 6, 2019. His article is entitled, And Still They Came, Reflections on Normandy and the Holiness of Sacrifice. I want to share an excerpt with you today. He said The American Semina- cemetery at Colville sur Mer is located at the top of the cliffs of Omaha Beach, scene of the fiercest fighting on D Day. The Higgins boat had to beach at low tide, some 300 yards from the waterline, and American troops of the 1st Infantry Division and the 29th Infantry Division. Struggled under combat gear, past mines and obstacles and under murderous enemy fire just to reach the base of the cliffs. Men drowned under the weight of their combat gear. Men were shot or their boats were blown up before they ever reached the shoreline. Men were blown apart, detonating some of the thousands of mines that littered the beach. Men were exposed on the beach to interlocking fields of machine gun and artillery fire. Men fought yard by yard up those cliffs to attack entrenched, heavily defended enemy positions. And still they came. Of course, the next five days proved crucial as the Allies landed a total of 16 divisions by air or sea and eventually achieved the vital foothold on the Continent. Yet I am drawn back to that single day, June 6th, 1944 and the unrelenting sacrifice of those allied soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and even Coast Guardsmen. We're all unswervingly brave. We're all paragons of moral rectitude. We're all motivated only by higher loyalty to God, country, or freedom were all so disciplined or controlled in their temper to not kill outside the norms of war. Of course, the plain answer to all of these questions is no, and still they came. This refrain then makes the commemoration of this battle so poignant and so remarkable. In contemporary life, society has disassociated sacrifice with its spiritual roots. Normandy will not let us forget that bond. If the men of D-Day embodied any virtue above all others, it was this holy virtue of sacrifice. Despite all of the challenges, these men again and again came to fight and die and to achieve victory. They simply would accept nothing less in this single expression of the warrior's character these men embodied the noblest and highest of virtues the willingness to die for another john 15:13 whether that other was their friend on their right or on their left whether it was an unknown french resident of a village or a town whether it was a comrade in arms from their partner forces or french partisans they were willing to die for that man or woman this is why we rightly remember and venerate these warriors because their willingness to sacrifice even unto death is one of the closest parallels to the sacrificial love of god we will ever see in american history or the broader history of democratic freedom theologically of course if we wish to see the virtue of sacrifice perfected then we must first look to god himself who in character embodies all the virtues first, and thus is him by whom we even know what these are, let alone can strive toward them. However, I am convinced that short of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Normandy offers us the closest earthly marker of holy sacrifice among humanity that we are ever likely to find, certainly in American history. In this way, these men of all faiths, or no faith at all, enabled the destruction of one of the most hegemonistic and evil socio-political systems the world has ever known. And for that, we rightly venerate them. However, in so sacrificing themselves, they inchoately teach us something of the eternal God who stands above and yet entered into history. Thus, just as he came, so still they came. 4,400 soldiers gave their life for the cause of freedom on D-Day. They were obedient to their vow to serve, even unto death. And we may never know how many lives were saved because of their sacrificial gift, Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for you and for me and to everyone who has ever lived. He gave his life even though you and I did not deserve it, all because of his great love for us. Philippians 2, 5-8 says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus we are humbled today to gather at Christ's communion table. For when we place our trust in him as our Lord and our Savior, we are made righteous through his sacrifice for us. And as followers of Jesus, who is the truth, and who commands us to love and to obey his commandments, we can taste and we can see the goodness of God. And we can know with absolute assurance of God's great love for you and for me. Will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks for your great love that you've shown most profoundly in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Lord, help us to learn what it means to stand on your truth Help us learn what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. And Lord, help us to obey you so that in our lives, the world will see you alive, the body of Christ, and be drawn unto you. We pray through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.